Welcome to All Together Now. This is Eleanor Lacane. There is a titanic struggle today between authoritarianism and democracy. Although for decades it seemed that democracy was winning, in recent years, tyrants seem to be on the rise. What makes a strong leader a tyrant? How do they rise to power? And how can they be stopped? The world has had tyrants all the way back to ancient Greece and beyond. What do we have to learn from ancient Greece that can help us deal with tyrants today? Our guests can answer all these questions and more. Andrew Fiella is a professor of philosophy and director of the Center for Ethics at California State University in Fresno. He is a respected scholar of ethics and political philosophy and a prominent thinker about nonviolence. He just published a new book, Tyranny from Plato to Trump, Fools, Sycophants, and Citizens. Andrew Fiella, welcome to All Together Now. Thank you for having me. Glad to be with you. So this is a very timely book, particularly with uh, Putin's behavior in the Ukraine, and Trump is still on the scene, not gone away. Um, what was it that inspired you to write this book at this time? Well, I mean, obviously, um, the Trump years are the jumping off point, um, you know, sort of as I was witnessing this as a, a citizen and a concerned um, thinker, I, you know, I was worried about what was what I was seeing happening in our country. Um, and, you know, I, I also was responding to some of my colleagues who wanted to jump to the worst case scenario with regard to Trump and, and the Trump years. And I was I was kind of worried about hyperbole in, in a lot of this. So I really wanted to think carefully and clearly about uh, the, the, the manifestation of what I want to call a kind of tyranny, although I think Trump is, is not quite a tyrant. As, I, as you know, I call him a would-be tyrant. Um, and so, you know, it was, I mean, that's the initial catalyst for, for my thinking about this. But I've frankly been thinking and teaching about this for my whole career, because tyranny has always been a concern for philosophers since the time of Plato. So, you know, it, it's this recent events allowed me to go back and think through the past 2,500 years of Western history. Um, and I see a lot of parallels and, and some warnings and, and room for hope as well. Well, I want to get to that. It's not looking very hopeful on the scene right now. <laughs> so I definitely want to come back to that. Um, so I find it fascinating that you've had this deep background and as you say, reviewing the past 25 years of Western civilization, which is giving you kind of a big historical lens for looking at our current events. And one of the things that struck me in your book is saying, you know, we've seen this movie before that um, time and time again through history, we see familiar character types and plot lines of the strong man grabbing for power and then abusing it and harming the people who helped him get there. So um, here we are yet again uh, with several uh, of these characters now dominating the world stage or getting ready to come back in again. Um, and I like, you know, your contribution here talking about how this happens, that it's not just a strongman 
um, that it actually takes a lot more than that. We, you know, there's always going to be people who want power, want control over others for their own aggrandizement, but that is not sufficient. Usually, you know, like to, for them to get in power and to run a country. So can you talk a little bit about what you call the, the tragic trio and the constellation of players that lead to a condition where a tyrant actually rises to power? Yeah, yes. So thank you for, for uh, asking me to talk about the tragic trio. I think this is the, the unique contribution of my theory of tyranny, that tyrants don't consolidate power by themselves. So the three players there, the tyrant himself, it's almost always a man, by the way, but we, we can talk about that later. The tyrant himself, then the sycophants, those who facilitate power, those who speak up and down the chain of command, right? The, the, the whisperers, the people who keep the secrets, um, the people who also speak to the crowd and the masses, because the tyrant is not only, you know, when there's a rally or whatever, the tyrant's introduced by somebody, right? There's a whole power structure, the bureaucracy around tyranny. That's what I call the sycophants. And then there's the mob, the masses, um, the followers, the, the, the people who cheer the tyrant on. And each of those characters shows up when you look at, you know, ancient tyranny, you look at examples in Shakespeare or what have you. There's, mm -hmm. there's all of these, these, these three players show up in one way or another. And we saw this happen in our country, right? Where there was mm -hmm. the would-be tyrant. Um, and then there was all of the power structure that facilitated that, including a bunch of really interesting people who started out anti-Trump and then switched gears. And that's a kind of sycophant move, right? This is mm -hmm. sort of what, what happens with these folks. They flow along with power. And then there was the mob, the people who cheered on Trump and and by the way, the, the, even though Trump is the catalyst, is the, you know, the impetus for this, this uh, account, this happens everywhere. And we can all participate in various ways in this. It's really a spiritual, a psychological problem. We see these players in our families, right? There's tyrannical family members, and then those who facilitate and allow that to happen. And then there's the folks on the, in the background who just cheer and jeer and, um, and are amused by the whole thing. We see this in businesses. We see it in schools and clubs and so on it's a common problem and and that the problem almost always has these three three players to one degree or another well that's fascinating and uh boy we could do a whole show just on the tragic trio and as it's expressed in the modern family uh and i actually do want to circle back to that in a minute um so i really appreciate you giving the context for a tyrant, because I think too much power is given to one person and really no one person can do it alone. They need support to be able to uh, aggrandize so much power to themselves. So I love that you name that and, and you say it's also the syncophants who uh, support them. And then uh, kind of the, the mob that cheer and jeer as, as, as they rise, but doesn't stop them and like motiv motivates them and gives them a veneer of authenticity to continue to, to rise. So um, let's talk about each of these three roles a little bit. Um, now, Tyrant, you're saying Trump is not a tyrant, he's a would-be 
tyrant, although his opponents certainly look at him as a tyrant. Uh, is there a clear definition that is objectively understood what is a tyrant, or is the definition of a tyrant really in the eye of the beholder? Yes. So, um, you know, the, the word tyrant has been used on all sides in all kinds of places and ways. You know, people are even talking about, you know, the mask mandates as tyrannical, right? The, mm-hmm. the pushback against vaccines and so on. The word tyrant shows up in that conversation. I, I, I chronicle a lot of this in the book. Obama was accused of being a tyrant, et cetera, et cetera. Abraham Lincoln was accused of being a tyrant. And when John Wilkes Booth assassinated Lincoln, he used this phrase right out of the history of, of tyranny, thus also to tyrants, he said, quoting Brutus, who killed Julius Caesar, right? So um, the word tyrant shows up, and sometimes it's just a politically loaded term, meaning people we don't like, or policies we don't like, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I I, I recognize that in the book. And then what I try to do is figure out, is there a more objective definition? Um, And so I propose that the tyrant, there's several features to real tyranny, to a real tyrant. One is they desire absolute power. They desire unlimited power. So they're motivated by this internal need for power. And that's not connected to ethics or morality. It's not connected to a concern for the common good. It's just their own hubris, to use that word out of Greek uh, tradition. Hubris is pride or arrogance, right? It's their own self-inflated ego that, that leads them to want power. But that's not enough to make a tyrant. So the tyrant also actually has to have that power. And that's the beauty of our, our system, you know, that we, we don't have a system in which someone like Trump or anyone else could consolidate power in their own hands. So even if, and I, I offer a diagnosis of this, that Trump does seem to want lots of power and he is motivated by his own pride, but he was stymied in a sense by the system that prevented him from consolidating power. So. I think, you know, that keeping that in mind is helpful. And then if we think, just if you don't mind me taking this one step further, um, claims about like mask mandates and, you know, vaccines and so on, that's not really about power. It's not based on pride. Those policies are based in a concern for the common good. So even though they may violate our liberty, it's, you know, libertarians will argue, well, how dare you make me wear a mask? It's, it's for the good of the whole, right? And that's quite different from real tyrants. The actual tyrants don't care about the good of the whole. They really only care about themselves. Um, so that's, you know, again, that's going to be the crucial deciding point that helps us eliminate some of this stuff that people call tyranny, but it's really not. Good explanation of what a tyrant really is. And so Trump, it's by your definition, would be a tyrant if he could have been, but he got stopped by some people along the way, but he's not out of the picture. And if we didn't have courageous people stepping up, he he would have been a tyrant. That was his absolute ambition. So uh, we want to keep him in the would-be category, not is category. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, now, I'm curious on, on the, this, this tragic trio that makes a tyrant possible, the, the tyrant himself, the syncophants, and then uh, the mob. Um, are those all words that come from Greek, ancient Greek? Yeah, well, so the word tyrant in Greek um, originally meant just sort of king, right, the ruler. 
And through Plato's work and through other folks in Athens around that time of the, you know, great Athenian enlightenment, um, the word tyrant came to mean a negative king, like a, a selfish king, a self-interested king, a prideful king. Mm -hmm. We see that, you know, in Sophocles, you know, the famous Oedipus Rex. The Greek title there is Oedipus Tyrannos, Oedipus the tyrant. Um, then the word sycophant, that the kind of middle player, right? That actually also is a Greek word from right around that same time frame. It means in, in, in the ancient world, slightly different from what we mean by that. You know, we, we mean by that like a, a flatterer, a suck up. There's mm -hmm. worse words for that, by the way. <laughs> yes. graphic expression. Um, and, and that, you know, trace that all the way back to the ancient world. Um, the, the sycophant in the ancient world was someone that knew secrets and would threaten to disclose those secrets uh, in demand of a bribe or something. Mm -hmm. And so the sycophants often would like create these court cases that were based on, you know, sometimes lies, but sometimes secrets. Um, so there's a sense of the, in the ancient world that it's someone that discloses something obscene, um, even at like a, that, that the root word there is fig and there's a connotation that may have something to do with, you know, genitals or something anyway. Um, but that word has entered into our vocabulary. Now it's, we know what that means in English. And then the last category, um, the mob, I actually use in the book the word moron. I, mm -hmm. I call, I talk about the moronic mob. And this is not, I'm not saying that it's only like the Trump crowd or the Obama crowd or whatever. It's an equal opportunity um, problem. And in Greek, the word, that root word moros means like blind. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, ignorant. It doesn't mean like there's a cognitive dysfunction. It's not that, that their brains don't work. It's that they choose to turn a blind eye to something they should actually be able to see. And we see that that, that terminology shows up in the Greek tragedies. Um, and that phrase that even that word moros shows up in like in the Bible, in the, you know, in the gospels, they use that word. Um, Paul, you know, the idea like, you know, I once was blind, but now I see. Mm -hmm. kind of thing about, you know, biblical enlightenment. That's the same phraseology that shows up there. So the Greeks help us in that regard. They provide the vocabulary that we use to talk about a lot of this. Yeah, that's a, a great description, rooting it historically. And we're still seeing these dynamics play out in human affairs today, even in our own country. So uh, so we've talked about the tyrant in the, in the trio. Let's talk about the sycophant. Now, these are the people who... Uh, enable it. And you talked about some people who originally anti-Trump when Trump got power, just reverse course. And now they're suddenly spouting pro-Trump. Yay, he's our guy. Uh, yeah. it, describe the sycophant here. What happens with that? Yeah, well, so um, the sycophant is not grasping power like the tyrant does, right? It's not, not just a bully bullying in and grabbing uh, power like the tyrant does. Rather, the sycophant is kind of subtle about this, right? Sort of detecting which way the winds blow and then going along with the flow of power. Um, we, again, we all do this, right? This happens in business life, right? Somebody gets promoted and next thing you know, everyone's kissing up to the guy that got the job up top, you know? It's sort of inevitable because power uh, seduces us in that way, right? Um, so what's, what's, what's fascinating to me as examples of this during the Trump years were people like Ted Cruz and Lindsey Graham who were anti-Trump. I mean, like the, I, I quote some of the stuff. Lindsey Graham used really 
terrible language. Maybe we can't say it on your show, but mm -hmm. you know, some kind of graphic language to describe Trump. And then Trump gets elected. And next thing you know, Lindsey Graham is basically Trump's greatest champion in a way, right? So that is psychologically, spiritually, ethically interesting, right? How can people flip-flop like that? Mm -hmm. So what I one of the things I, I describe is I call it um, opportunism, contortionism, mm -hmm. right? The sycophant is good at that, you know, shape-shifting. Like they know, they know what to say to whom. So when they speak up the chain of command, they, they say a certain thing up, upwards. When they talk down to the rest of us, they explain things differently. And then they're also whispering in each other's ears and stabbing each other in the back <laughs> if they can, you know? So that's the game of, the game of power. Um, and literature is full of this, right? Like one great example is Game of Thrones. You know, this, if you ever know anything about that um, series of books and the, the television show, there's all kinds of machinations and manipulations going on. The, the sycophants are all over the place there. Um, and it's, it's in literature. Again, it's in business and family life. And then we're, we've seen it. Again, we've seen it happen during the Trump times. Yeah, and some of these sycophants eventually, like, realize what happened to them. I mean, Michael Cohen, who was Trump's lawyer, actually called himself Sycophant when he was, um, you know, after he kind of, I don't know whether he woke up or admitted to himself or how do you get more of these Sycophants to be like Michael Cohen and go, oh my God, I, I was blind and now I see. You know, I was yeah. duped and now I'm aware this guy is only out for himself and he doesn't care about anybody else, including me. How do we get more people to get that awareness? Right. Well, yeah, you're, that, that example of Cohen's very interesting. He admits that he was a sycophant. Of course, he was thrown under the bus, <laughs> right? So maybe one way you wake up is the, the, the tyrant turns against you and then you mm -hmm. realize well, that was a waste of time, right? Um, I, I don't know the man. So I don't know, you know, I can't peer into his soul and tell you what's going on in, in his life. But um, one, one truth that you could take away from this is that the sycophant is always quite vulnerable. You know, the tyrant, especially if they're very powerful and very rich, when the thing falls apart, they'll just leave, right? They, they can get on their jet airplane and fly to a secret island somewhere, right? You know, but mm -hmm. the sycophants don't have that amount of power. Um, and so they often end up bearing the brunt of the, the disaster, right? Because they're kind of left behind and left holding the bag. Um, this, by the way, is really tricky to think about as we're moving past the Trump years, right? So how are we going to make it possible for people like Ted Cruz and Lindsey Graham to shift gears a little bit, right? What, what kind of shape-shifting and contortionism will happen in their stories, right? They'll be interesting to observe. You asked sort of like, what's the, how do we get people to not be sycophants? Well, the, the watchword there is integrity, is truth. <laughs> you know, all the, the ethical truisms, very important, right? People with um, integrity and a concern for the truth are not going to shapeshift. They're not going to mm -hmm. contort themselves to the power structure. So really at the bottom of I me, mean, the solution to all of this is, you know, moral improvement, moral development and ethical backbone, as it were. Um, I, you know, the hope is you can teach people to be ethical, but, you know, it's, a, it's, it's an ongoing perennial problem. How do we get people to be, to be good? That's the real question in all of this. Well, I hope the future of our democracy doesn't depend on Ted Cruz and Lindsey Graham learning moral character. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they've already 
proven the they'll shapeshift for power no matter what. And I, I, you know, it's where the power goes, that's where they're going to be. And they don't even like blink an eye. They just like shift and they're onto the other team. Um, so uh, yeah, but I do hope we can give them an off ramp. Um, <laughs> now the third, the third group in the in the tragic trio uh, that allows tyrants to rise to power is the moronic mob. And um, before 2016, I would have been deeply offended by that phrase and said that was 200 years behind us uh, in the United States, that we were well beyond it. And it would be either other countries or some historical reference. Now we're finding 40% of Americans currently believe the 2020 election uh, was not legitimate. And it's just absolutely shocking to me. And with absolutely no evidence whatsoever that 40% of people believe the big lie. Um, so talk a little bit about the moronic mob here uh, in the United States. Like, who are these people? What's going on there? Yeah. Uh, so this is this is tricky, and we have to be very careful here too. I, you know, I, I don't want to suggest that you know the the folks that believe the big lie that like you know they're they're mentally deficient or something. That's not what this phraseology means, right? What I, what I intend to say here is that um, people often and have often deliberately chosen to ignore truth deliberately chosen to cheer on bad guys and bullies. So the word mob is instructive. Um, let's go back a little further in American history. We, that word shows up in the phrase lynch mob. And a mm -hmm. lynch mob, you've seen these pictures from the history of the United States when large crowds of people show up at the tree and there's someone hanging from the tree and they're smiling and having a, a great time. That's the kind of problem I'm worried about, right? Those people should should know that what they're that what they're looking at is wrong, but they choose not to judge. Instead, they are amused and entertained. And I think this is a common human failing again. We all have this tendency to just laugh along with racist jokes, to um, you know, to to yuck it up at the expense of other people, including all kinds of cruelty. Um, and it's, it's a, again, a common problem, has always been a problem for humanity. So now fast forward back to, you know, where we are today. Um, I'm, so, so let, me, let me back up one step. Some Trump fans and followers base their um, interest on policy, right? They actually are interested in certain ideas. But I think that's only some of the folks that cheer on President Trump. I think the other part of the crowd is it's not policy, it's personality, right? It's about Trump is interesting and amusing and inspiring in a sense, like as a personality, right? Not because of his policies, but because of sort of what he represents in our culture. Notice he begins as a celebrity, right? It's, our, it's part of our culture of celebrity. And then you, you take this beyond the Trump group and look how easy it is for all of us to ignore terrible things that celebrities do we just like them. It's fun to cheer on our favorite celebrity or whatever, right? So 
um, it's it, what I how I what I argue in the book is that what part of what the problem here is our tendency to want to be amused, our tendency to ignore morality, and then last thing I I argue it's also it also includes a kind of fascination with violence, because the mob is often right on the edge of violence, and I quote. Quentin Tarantino in the book. Tarantino at some point says, violence is fun, man. And I think that's true. I think that's why kids like to play violent video games. It's why we like all the James Bond and blow them up movies, right? We, we're, we're not thinking critically at those times when we enjoy that stuff. We're just moving along with the emotion of the moment, right? It's violence that that is like a spectacle and we get excited about it. That to me is a deeply disturbing part of human nature but undeniable, right? I think this is, we've always been like that, the ancient Greeks on down. So I, I hopefully, Eleanor, maybe, is that helping a little bit kind of play out the groundwork of, of some of, I think, what's going on? Now, when you look at the Trump crowd, you see bits and pieces of that, right? Not only just, self, not only self-interest, but amusement, fun, entertainment, or at least he's, you know, our guy is not the other guy, right? There's this and, kind of us versus them stuff too. Yeah, well, and in fact, it's almost never self-interest. I mean, most of the people who supported Trump suffered under the policies that he had He's, you know 85 percent of the tax breaks in his 2017 tax bill went to the top one percent the very wealthy corporations and the citizens and you know low-income middle class be damned and yet they keep voting for him so it's not about self-interest that's why we need to understand what is it about like what is it that gets people to be voting against their yeah. Self-interest. You know, if I could just throw in here something from the history of philosophy, Plato, the great Greek philosopher, was mm-hmm. not a fan of democracy. <laughs> he he mm-hmm. said that democracy was rule of the mob, and in some places he calls the mob a wild beast. Mm-hmm. The mob, the democratic mob, on Plato's view, is just moved by id, like it's it's libido, right? It's just pure animal energy. Um, I, I think Plato goes over the top on that. I think there, I think there can be rational democracy. I think you know, people are not irredeemable and not um, unreformable. Un, uh, but Plato dismissed democracy because he thought it was rule of the of the wild beast, the mob. Um, and, and we see that again, right? You go to a political rally, you go to a football game, right? People cheer, woo! You know, your team is winning. You don't care really about the moral questions of who's on the field or whatever. You know, it's. We, we like to, to lose ourselves in the mob, in a sense, and that's, that's part of the problem. Yeah, well, and this was something actually that the, the founding fathers built into the structure of our government, uh, both with the uh, separation of powers and also having the House, which would be more responsive to the heat of the moment and the people you know, elected every two years on one chamber and then the other chamber was the senators who were there for six years could take a longer view and not have to be uh, beholden to the, you know, the, the heat of the moment, hopefully taking a longer view of what's in the best interest of the country. Um, so talking about the founding fathers, they were, uh, they saw uh, King George of Great Britain as a tyrant, whether he fits your definition or not, that's certainly what they believed. And they were amazing to me how much they studied history and looked at different forms of governance and looked at tyrants over the years. 
and, and came up with a very innovative structure uh, with the, the main goal of the structure being to design a system of government to prevent the rise of a tyrant because they absolutely did not want a tyrant, did not want a tyrant in the United States. So um, talk a little bit about, about that and how you see the, the founding fathers of the United States. Yeah, you know, um, I mean, this is this is one of the big solutions here, right? So if we're going to prevent, if if the ty if we define the tyrant as he who consolidates power, important part the, the the ability to grab power, one of the cures is to prevent that from happening, right? So um, you're right. The founders uh, were very concerned with tyranny. The Declaration of Independence, the word tyrant shows up a dozen times, or some variation of that that mm -hmm. word, right? They 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 were trying to resist the, what they saw as the negative implications of the structure they'd just broken away from, right? So they, they studied the history of the Western tradition. They read the ancient philosophers. Um, you know, you can, there's accounts of what were in these people's libraries, right? You can see that they were actually studying the ancient world. They read Montesquieu and Locke and some of the other modern philosophers. And the solution they came up with was, as you said, separation of powers, checks and balances, the rule of law, with also the addition of explicit defenses of human rights and freedom of religion and so on in the First Amendments to the Constitution. Um, all of that was, on my interpretation, designed to create a kind of dysfunctional system. Uh, it's hard to get anything done, but it prevents anyone from consolidating power. And I think when you look at the Constitution from that standpoint, it starts to make a lot of sense, right? If the worst thing that can happen in political life is for a tyrant to rise up and consolidate power and violate the rule of law, if that's the worst thing that can happen, then you need a system that prevents that worst thing from happening. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's the dysfunction of it can be frustrating at times when you watch all the gridlock in Washington um, but the gridlock makes sense if, if, if the thing they're aiming at is to prevent the tyrant from, from grabbing power. And then back to Trump again. So, you know, I, I describe um, the events of January 6, 2021, you know, the, the, the threat to the constitutional system and the transition of power there. But I call it tyranny averted, um, right? There was a risk that things would go wrong, but the constitutional framework held including all of its clunkiness, the weird electoral college system, you know, which is, uh, try to explain that to anyone who's not American, like, <laughs> what? Electoral college, it makes no, you know, et cetera, et cetera, um, including, including Vice President Pence, who had a, a constitutional role that day, and he chose wisely, I think, right? He chose to resist the, the threat to this, the transition of power, and so in the book, I describe him as a kind of hero. I mean, there's, you know, there's a lot more to be said about Mike Pence, but in that moment, um, he's someone that we could say did the right thing, given the constitutional framework. And what was the right thing? Well, the right thing was to allow for the peaceful transition of power that prevented any single individual from consolidating power. And, and if you don't mind me saying a couple of the other threats that would have happened, I think, if Trump had mm -hmm. succeeded, you know, he was talking about um, pardoning himself. You remember this? All this stuff. Right. That that's that's very weird. 
<laughs> and dangerous. To well, say it puts it puts the president above the law, and we should in our country we should never have anybody above the law. Exactly. So the you know some of the stuff that that showed up in uh, both of the impeachment trials, you know these threats to the rule of law, all of this stuff. Um, luckily, none of it happened. So I think again, it's it's a kind of a good news story about the wise dysfunction of this two hundred and fifty some odd year old. Uh, system. Well, it didn't happen then, but uh, we now know that uh, Trump sycophants had mapped out a whole plan for how Trump could say that he was actually still going to be the president, and he led the mob to attack our U.S. Capitol on January 6th to try and stop the installation of Joe Biden as our president. And really, um, the only reason it that he was stopped uh, then was of the courage of certain individuals. So you mentioned Vice President Pence, who remarkably, in my view, actually showed courage and did the right thing. Uh, he's not someone I would have thought of as being a hero or courageous, but and when push came to shove, he stood with the United States and the Constitution yes. against Trump. So good for him. But he could have easily gone the other way. And likewise, the Secretary of State in Georgia, who uh, is a Republican and refused to buckle when Trump tried to get him to change the election results in his favor, mm -hmm. and a, a number of local and state election officials who courageously stood their ground in the face of physical threats to themselves and their families. So I'm concerned because they stood up then, but now we've got pro-Trumpians flooding into the state and local elections with the precise intention of next time Trump wins or a Republican that they want, they'll just you know say that their candidate of choice won and Constitution and voters be damned. What do you think about that concern? Uh, yeah, <laughs> that is that is a serious concern. I mean, you know, we uh, who knows, right? Uh, the, this midterm election and the, the following presidential election, um, who knows what might happen? Um, and I, I share your concerns with this. Um, but the narrative you just laid out reminds us that there are good people up and down the bureaucracy up and down the federal system. There are good people who, who know what the right thing to do is. Um, what you know, this is uh, I, you know I have a lot of friends. I mean, th this was a crazy few years. You know, you live you live through right. I have a right. lot of friends who are like I had a front row seat in Washington D.C. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can imagine. I'm luckily I'm in Central California. We don't. <laughs> um, but you know, I have, I have friends who are like, I we got to get out of here. This country's falling apart, you know. And mm -hmm. and one of the things I point out is, is well, a couple of things. One is um, there are good people installed in all levels of our bureaucracy. There are mm -hmm. good police chiefs. There are good sheriffs. There are good mayors. There are good governors. There are good legislators. Good county clerks, right? The people that count the votes and stuff. I mean, most of these people are they're they're just interested in doing the right thing, you know. Mm -hmm. I, I believe. Um, mm -hmm. And we've seen, by the way, you know, now after January 20th, right? So the, the rioters, whatever you want to call them, insurrectionists, they've been arrested and they're, some of them are going to jail or being prosecuted. 
And that's being handled by the bureaucrats in the middle management, you know, the folks that work in the FBI and the Justice Department, wherever else. These are not political um, agents who have been installed. They're just people doing their jobs mm -hmm. as defined by the Constitution, right? So that's one piece of hope um, that there are good people up and down the chain of command. The other, I think, important thing to remember is that we actually have gotten better over time, despite the, you know, the, the kind of backsliding and worries about the last five or so years. Think of the, the great advances we've made. And I, I, I talk about this in the book. Tyranny was woven into the Constitution in terms of slavery. One of the worst things we could imagine as a, as a form of tyranny, that was legal under the, the original Constitution. We eliminated that. It was very difficult. It took a war. Mm -hmm. uh, another kind of tyranny, the, the patriarchal family, right? We, we've, women now have the right to vote 100 years later, right? I mean, we, we've, made, we've made improvements to this system. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to imagine us going absolutely back to square one, right? Because history kind of has this ratchet effect to it, right? We make these improvements. I'm not so sure you can go all the way back. Um, so keeping in mind that we have made progress, uh, maybe, you know, <laughs> this sounds a little, little naive, but maybe we'll keep making progress, right? <laughs> the improvements we made and make even further improvements. Although I realize it's risky. You know, you're, you're exactly right. I think we need to be worried. Um, yeah, it's risky. And I, I think it's good to be hopeful and also wide awake that we cannot take it for granted that our government, as it's currently constituted, will continue. And um, I believe if Trump does run again, he'll claim to have won, and it's uncertain how that's going to unfold. Yeah. And um, if he gets installed in power again, I don't think we'll ever have another free and fair election in the country. So what happens this year in the midterms is vital to uh, try to get as many Democrats in office as we can as a bulwark for our democracy or democratic republic. Mm -hmm. um, and, and absolutely, uh, all, all the way, the next three years, the 2022 midterms and then the 2024 presidential year election. So uh, you've mentioned women a couple of times and that tyrants are almost always men. Uh, I can't think of a woman tyrant. I'm sure they're out there. But are there women tyrants, and why are so many of the tyrants men? This is an interesting puzzle. <laughs> uh, Not to women. <laughs> well, <okay. laughs> yeah, chalk it up to toxic masculinity or something. <laughs> right? so, um, you know, in the ancient world, I mean, it's, it's, these are all men. You know, the women were just had like second, second human status. Not second class, like literally subhuman status in mm -hmm. ancient Greece anyway. Um, you know, maybe they're, you know, they're, I could imagine like, uh, you know, uh, a Tsarina of Russia, maybe as a, a kind of tyrant. Um, partly that depends on the system, right? So is, is, there, is there a system in which a woman would be handed absolute power, would be able to obtain absolute power? Um, could be, right? Um, but typically a male thing. So one of, the, one of the things worth considering here is, is, is this something about the male ego, right? Something about um, our, our view of masculinity that encourages bullying, that women can be bullies too, I know, but encourages um, narcissism and inflated pride. And so, you know, I, I don't talk about this in the book, but I've been thinking about it. Mm -hmm. um, 
in our culture, at least up until the last 25, 50 years, in our culture, men just assume they're better, right? The same is true with like white supremacy, right? Like white men just assume they're better because the whole culture reinforces that point of view. Mm-hmm. And so if you have been taught from day one that you're better than these other people, this is then pride, arrogance, and so on. And you're willing to abuse and take advantage of those people who are not as good as you. So part of the solution from this vantage point includes you know, criticizing patriarchy, criticizing male dominance, white supremacy, all of these things, because the truth is no human being is better than any other human being, right? We're, mm-hmm. we're all just thrown into this life. We're doing the best we can just because you happen to be born with certain skin color or you know, a certain configuration of your reproductive organs that doesn't give you any better claim on success, happiness, power than anyone else, right? So I, you know, I, I, maybe I have to write another book now, how you know, critique of tyranny also leads us to deconstruct the patriarchy. You know, I think, I think, but I think that's important. I think it, it's important. Yeah, well, I think that's absolutely worth an article, if not a book. And uh, if you do pursue that path, I encourage you to check out Dr. Carol Gilligan, who was a professor at Harvard and did a lot of work on the psychology of women. But uh, what I think it's her most recent book is Why Does Patriarchy Persist? Mm. And I did an interview with her um, last year on this show. You might want to listen to. But it really goes into how that happens that, yes, the the males do think they're better uh, than the females to such an extent that if a male gets confused with female, like gay men might be seen as more feminine or whatever, that they like break out into a sweat and really want to distance themselves even from gay friends because they don't want to be considered as part of that feminine that is less than the male. So I think there's a lot there that, that drives what goes on. And I think uh, Dr. Gilligan really has done a lifetime of research to understand and explain that. So I encourage you to listen to that interview. Um, So I want to circle back here to your deep knowledge of uh, ancient philosophy, ancient history, uh, 2,500 years. What can we learn from the ancient Greeks who invented the very words we use to describe this situation? What can we learn from them about how do we prevent tyrants from rising and how do we deal with tyrants once they appear on the scene? Yeah, so um, Plato, you know, this is kind of my go-to source, uh, the most interesting of all the philosophers. I mean, Plato, so we go to Plato. He wrote several dialogues where he literally is talking about the problem of tyranny. Um, and there were people that Plato and Socrates knew that were trying to establish themselves as tyrants. The name of one of these characters is Alcibiades. Um, and Alcibiades was a friend of Socrates, a lover of Socrates. And at one point, Socrates says to this young man, oh, I understand what, what you want to do. You want to rule the whole world. You want to rule the world like a god. It's like a quote, basically, from Plato. And Socrates says, uh, that's a fundamental mistake. 
<laughs> um, you've misunderstood what God is, and you've misunderstood the nature of ruling, and you've misunderstood yourself, because nobody ought to want to rule the whole world in that way, right, with godlike power. So this is on the table in Plato. Um, Plato's proposal is weird, though. So Plato suggests that the solution is what he calls the philosopher king. So instead of a tyrant king, what we need is an enlightened, a wise king. Um, this is not a democratic solution, right? This is a, mm -hmm. another imposition of some top-down structure. So while Plato's theory is, you know, everybody knows the story of the philosopher king, it's interesting and it tells us the what the problem of tyranny is. It's really not a viable solution for those of us that believe in democracy, right? So um, the Greeks only give us half the political solution, but they, give, they do give us the spiritual or, or psychological solution, which is that what we need is self-knowledge, um, self-reflection. We need to look in the mirror. We need to do self-analysis. And as we do this, we need to discover our own flaws. Um, we need to, to defuse our pride, right, to, to pers uh, pop a hole in, in the, the bubble of pride. And we need to then pursue goodness and truth and integrity and ethics and all of this stuff. So what I really take away from the Greek tradition is this important psychological and spiritual element. Let's call it moral education, right? We need, we need to be morally educated. And if we were, then we wouldn't be tyrants, right? No one would willingly want to you know, take over the world, nor would we be psychophants, nor would we be uh, members of the mob, right? Because in each case, the problem is a lack of self-knowledge, a lack of integrity, a lack of moral character. So I'm thinking as you're talking, uh, yes, we definitely need moral education. That was something that for centuries was done through religions, where whatever you think of religions, and they're certainly most of them part of the patriarchal structures, but that was something they often got right, was teaching moral education, teaching right from wrong, teaching about respecting the other person, treat the other person the way you want to be treated. If you had to distill the Bible to one sentence, it would probably be that, treat other people the way you want to be treated. Yeah. So to what extent do you think the decline of religion has contributed to the decline of moral education in the United States? Okay, we have a couple few hours to talk about this. <laughs> this is a big question, um, but it's a very obviously very important, right? So um, uh, I'm hesitant to say that religion is the only thing that can provide us with moral education. And you even mentioned this in your question that you know there, there's some bad news out of religion in terms of you know some of the values that are taught are patriarchal mm -hmm. and um, problematic. Also, let's point this out that in the history of the United States, religion was sometimes on the side of slavery, right? right. The, the Abraham Lincoln points this out. Both sides read, read the same Bible, you know? So um, maybe we don't want to go back 100% to old-time religion on this. But the question is, what does religion contribute to the conversation? Well, Or I would rephrase it, how do we do moral education at a time when religion is in decline? Yeah, I hear you. Okay. Yeah. So I, one thing is, I think we, um, we need to think carefully about <laughs> the meaning of our secular 
institutions, right? So we need to understand the First Amendment, the importance of liberty, uh, freedom of religion. And like, that's a really good place to start in our system, right? Because from that follows some of the stuff you mentioned, right? Respect for other people, um, reciprocity, the golden rule, right? That often involves respecting other people's liberty. So I think that's a, a good place. All Americans probably could find some consensus there. And then we also need to not be afraid to talk about good, <laughs> truth, justice. These, these are important concepts. And I, I worry sometimes, um, you know, given the pushback against K-12 that we've seen in recent years, some teachers are nervous to even go there, right? So public schools mm -hmm. like, well, we don't want to talk about ethics. Um, we'd get in trouble for that. Well, no. I mean, I actually think you ought to be talking about ethics, but you can do it in a way that is right in line with our civic institutions. Uh, we could look at role models from our, our uh, history, right? Including folks like Thomas Jefferson, who unfortunately also owned slaves. And then we could talk about the problems associated with Thomas Jefferson, who was a great opponent of tyranny, but also tyrannized over his own slaves, right? And mm -hmm. then we can derive some moral judgment from that. Um, I, I think I actually I think you know I teach ethics in a public university um, every semester. I'm I'm talking with students about this who come from all kinds of religious backgrounds, and we can find consensus about what's right and what's wrong without appealing to religious traditions, and with appealing to religious traditions because religions often agree about a lot of this stuff. But I think you're exactly right. We need moral education. We need better moral education in our country. And where do you see moral education um, taking place now? Like, is, do you have an, a good example? Like, is there a, the city that's got a good curriculum and think is a model curriculum? Or who's doing this right that we can learn from? Well, I, I've actually worked um, extensively with uh, folks doing character education, so-called character education. And this is uh, across the country. People are talking and interested in character education. Sometimes it's a little bit conservative, a little bit stodgy, you know, um, but it can also, uh, it doesn't have to be that way, right? Um, what, what happens with character education, especially like in K-8, right, kind of lower grades, is they'll talk about, um, you know, integrity, honesty, loyalty, uh, kindness, these kind of virtues that are universal mm -hmm. and that show up across the curriculum because you can read a novel about someone who's loyal. You could read a history lesson about you know, loyalty of you know, someone in history. You could even talk about the psychology and the sociology of loyalty, right? So character education is a, is a kind of well-known and, and time-honored approach to this. Um, and it's happening in our schools. One, one thing, I, if you don't mind if I just- Go ahead. Yeah, and by the way, William Bennett did, did a great book on that, I thought, uh, coming from the conservative side. but. These really, to me, go beyond left, right. They really are kind of our basic values as humans. I totally agree with you on that. And that's, you know, and we need to, we need to find that common ground again, right? Mm -hmm. so all this pushback against the schools. Well, what do we want the schools to really be teaching? How about kindness and responsibility and honesty and these kind of core values? So that's crucial. And that the other thing I would say is we also need civic education. Right. Um, so understand our institutions, understand the constitutional system, and it also often in, involves a kind of engagement, right? So service projects, service learning, civic engagement projects. We've I've, I've worked with a bunch of people who who are engaged in that 
stuff. Kids like it. They learn from it. It shows them agency, right? Like a service project shows a kid that they actually can make a difference. And while they're doing the service project, they may learn something about their local institutions and how they work. Um, because as you know, democracy is local, right? I mean, even though we talk about presidents and stuff, it often just matters getting like your next door neighbor to vote, <laughs> right? And it's, mm -hmm. it's all the local stuff that actually has a very like direct impact on how we live, this, who's on the school board, how the county clerk's office is organized and all that stuff. So civic and moral education, I think very important. And I think a lot of people are doing it. And I think we can do it. And I think we can do it better. Yeah. And who do you see doing the civic education well? I mean, I know the uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, when she left the Supreme Court, put together a whole program on civic education. But what do you see as kind of the bright lights and, and cities or towns or states that are doing good civic education? Yeah. Um, you know, it's not really my exact area of expertise, but um, mm -hmm. I did go to the state of California had a project on civic education five years ago, five or six years ago, that was motivated by the Chief Justice of the California Supreme Court. And she uh, was aware that there was a problem in the state of California, like forming a jury, right? If the people, if we're, you know, it's a jury of your peers, and if the people of California don't understand the legal and uh, institutional structures of California, how can they serve on a jury, right? So she had a a kind of proactive project that was led by the Chief Justice of California Supreme Court. I went to a, a conference about that in Sacramento, and the speaker was Anthony Kennedy, the U.S. Supreme Court Justice who re, uh, retired a few years ago. He gave a beautiful speech on the importance of civic education. And one of the things I remember is he said, you know, if Americans can't get democracy right, then there's no hope for democracy. <laughs> because you know, we, we have the longest lived democratic constitution on earth, and it's up to us as the, the leaders, as the paradigm, right? We need to make this work. That's a long-winded way of saying that I think lawyers, um, judges, the judicial branch, I think that they actually could take some leadership here. Uh, in a, because in a sense, they're non-political, right? At least, you know, in theory, right? That judges and lawyers... Uh, work on behalf of the Constitution, not on behalf of a political party. Um, so that, you know, they have, those folks have taken leadership, and I think they should. So bar associations, right, uh, attorneys groups, and so on, I think that's a good place to look for leadership in that. Yeah, that's good. Um, and we're, we only have a couple of minutes left, and I would be remiss to not ask you, if we're talking about tyrants, we cannot talk for an hour and not mention Putin and his attacks on Ukraine. And again, whether you call him a despot or a tyrant, uh, Putin really has aggregated a lot of power to himself and he's using it in complete destruction of the Ukrainian people and Ukrainian society. You know, two and a half million refugees and towns and bombed hospitals, um, bombed. So, I know, like me, you are uh, committed to nonviolence, and I, I wanted to ask you, as an expert in nonviolence, what do you see as a way to deal with this situation nonviolently? Yeah, it's this is it's, it's tricky and and tragic, and um, 
and who am I? <laughs> I always have to be cautious in it. You know, um, I'm a philosopher, not a not a general, not a leader of a nation. But um, I think one important point here is that there are moral rules governing warfare, and the just war tradition teaches us this. And Putin has violated those rules, right? People have been talking about war crimes. That's pretty obvious, right? So it helps to get the framework in front of us to think what are the what are the moral limits of war fighting. Um, whether you're a pacifist or not, it's still important to point out that there are moral rules and, and Putin violated them. Um, mm -hmm. Furthermore, uh, there's a question of who has an obligation to do what in this, uh, in this world and in, and in this case. Um, who, who, again, who am I to say what the Ukrainian people should or shouldn't be doing? Right, I mean, they're they're fighting for their lives, and and it would be uh, rude, <laughs> obnoxious to to judge that from outside. But one thing I think we can say that's not rude or obnoxious is that the Russian people have an obligation in this, um, and it's the Russian military that has an obligation in this. So, I you know one of the things I've I've written about this. Um, let's support the anti-war movement in Russia, and it's actually been tough to be anti-war in, Ru in Russia, they've arrested, I think the last count, like 15 to 18,000 people who are, who are protesting mm -hmm. against the war. Those people need our solidarity and our support um, because really ultimately, if, if, if things are gonna change in Russia, it has to come from within Russia, right? It's, it's, the Ukrainians are not gonna ch change Putin. Even NATO is not gonna change Putin. It's gonna be the Russian people that change things. So again, I think, you know, there's important question, who has to do what? Who has an obligation to what kind of nonviolence? The question gets very, very complicated. If you don't mind me saying last thought about Putin, um, yeah. you know, in terms of a tyrant, this would be the question. Is Putin after power for Putin? <laughs> or is does he believe that there's some good and benefit for the Russian people? If yeah. The first um, case is true. If, he's, if it's all about him, then he's a tyrant. And it, yeah, I think you could say, yeah, all tyrants would think they're for the country, <laughs> even if it's for themselves. So but they that lie. may be one they of those lie. chicken egg questions. Yeah. Um, so we're just to wrap up. We have one last question here is uh, most of our listeners are, are uh, people in the United States, although it is worldwide. But what can our listeners do to prevent the rise of tyrants in the United States and elsewhere? Yeah, well, so um, obviously nonviolence is important to put that on the table, right? So um, there are lots and lots of things Americans can do nonviolently to prevent tyranny. They can vote, <laughs> they can right. learn, they can teach, they can get engaged, they can uh, rally, right? So there's mm -hmm. there's a, a lot we can do. And and I use the word vigilance in the, in the book. I think that's a really important watchword, to be vigilant. Um, this, by the way, is a pandemic word too, right? Let's be vigilant. Let's wash our hands. Let's cover our faces. Let's get vaccinated. And I think the same kind of you know rules of thumb apply with tyranny, right? Let's let's cover our mouths, meaning let's not say mean spirited things, right? Let's use our words carefully. Let's inoculate ourselves, right? So let's be prepared for whatever we're going to face. So let's be vigilant in that regard. And then wash our hands. Let's make sure that we're not doing anything evil 
<laughs> it sounds silly. I, I'm sorry you have to say that out loud, but come on, Americans, right? We, we all have an obligation to be better. Um, and we can be better, you know, if we just take that seriously. Right. Well, on that call to action, uh, that is the end of our show. Uh, that's all the time we have. Andrew Fiala, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Great.